the idea is that you should be direct with care, right? So the bedrock of care for the person, but you're direct with them as a result of what they need to do. From a leadership perspective, that's something I think about day in, day out. This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Great ideas packaged a certain way want to spread. They want to be told to someone else. This is simple, surprising, and significant. Unlocking viral creativity is to make it rapidly scalable. This is Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. Today I'm chatting with Shane Murphy Reuter, CMO of Webflow, a website creation platform designed to enable you to build with the power of code without actually having to write any. Shane is no stranger to the tech world, having held senior leadership positions at ZoomInfo and Intercom. Over the years, Shane has led large marketing teams, managed multi-million dollar budgets, and even shifted gears to invest in tech companies with his role as a limited partner at Stage 2 Capital. So what does it take to lead in such diverse roles? How do you balance team empowerment with self-empowerment? And how do you adapt your brand positioning as the competitive landscape evolves and you grow market share? Let's find out with Shane Murphy Reuter. Shane, at Webflow, you're currently in a situation where there's been great success in the company. You've grown quite a bit, but you have this situation that you've described to me in the past where the market maybe perceives you in one way that is not your intention. And you might have some advantages over other competitors that you're lumped in with, and you want to shift that perception and that story. Talk about that both challenge and opportunity that you face now. Yeah, so that that's exactly right. So Webflow is a visual development platform. It allows designers build websites from scratch, all the power of code that like you could get from uh, developing in written code, but in a visual canvas. It is a completely new technology. Um, when Webflow launched, it was the first visual development platform. Now we still are, broadly speaking, the, 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 the only one that exists. And so what happens is if you're not really clear on your story, people have mental models of like categories of how the different products work. And so for visual development, it's not a thing. So if you go to somebody and say, hey, Webflow helps you build websites, they'll go, okay. And they will use their existing categories in their mind of what, the, what, what that means and put you in one of them. So either they'll put you in, oh, it must be like a coding platform, like a GitHub, or, oh, you're a Squarespace or Wix. Our challenge is that predominantly we were being put, uh, and today in kind of outside of our core market are put in the Wix and Squarespace box of like, Oh, it must be a template-based, um, pretty lightweight um, website builder. Where in reality, like the key difference for Webflow is that it allows you to break out of that. You can have all of the power of code, completely build something from scratch. And just to paraphrase what you were saying or, or use an analogy, it's almost like you know you haven't seen a movie yet, and your your buddy's telling you about the movie, and you're like, oh yeah, it's like Indiana Jones meets Tootsie. And you're like, okay, I have a cross-dressing archaeologist that's going out there because that's your reference point. People need a shorthand. They don't know all the details. But the problem is shorthand, and particularly if you have a tool that's more powerful or a product that has more advanced, everyone kind of says they're advanced. If you're new to it, you can't really tell the difference. So the shorthand is helpful because people want to figure you out, but it's also limiting if you don't craft how that shorthand is communicated. 100%. And actually, we'll come back to Webflow in a second. One of the, the examples of this I use a lot with my team, I love the fact that the iPhone has got the word phone in it. 
If you think about the iPhone, originally my understanding is that it was actually the team that were working on the iPad. It was a tablet and they got repurposed to work to create a smaller one in your pocket. In reality, it's a computer in your pocket. Um, but the genius of it was to say, like, everybody knows they need a phone. So actually, let's, this is the opposite we're trying to web flow. Let's lean into that and say, hey, yeah, yeah, you need a phone. So we've got a phone. And then help them reimagine what's in their pocket, what it can do, and what a phone is. And that's like a genius thing that Apple did. And so I do, I, I use that story to say that there are times where in certain technology situations that it is better to use existing categories, enter it, and then re help people reimagine um, what you can do in that category. And so you should be very uh, mindful of that. In Webflow situation, we're, we're not in that situation. It would be really difficult for us to say, hey, yeah, no, we're like a, a Squarespace and, and, or, or Wix, but like more powerful. Um, because those brands are so thought of as a certain thing in like a a serious um, website developer or designer wants to build things from scratch, they, they'll just dismiss you immediately. So we needed to really think about how do we carve out this new thing? Um, and, you know, I think, I think typically when trying to do that, there is one of two problems that companies face that I've, that I've worked at. Either, actually, you have a pretty good story, just not written it down. And so nobody's like clear on it. And then when everybody's executing individual marketing things or your CEO is on a podcast, whatever, everyone's describing it in a different way such that everyone is confused. So they just put you back in the box that they understand. Um, so that's like one, one category of, 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 of problem. And I would encourage any CMO joining a new company to like start with, let's codify what we think the existing story is. And the likelihood is that it is definitely not written down in the, the fully formed way it should be. The second category, which is uh, part, like Webflow are kind of in between category one, category two. The second category is like, no, 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 we're pretty clear on our, our positioning today. We now need to uh, shift our positioning because of we're going after a new market or we're moving from being a single product company to a multi-product company. In a way, like for example, that Tesla are clearly on a journey of going from we're an EV car company to we are an energy company and they're going to go on that shifting uh, shift over time. And so, yeah, I think it's a combination of just making sure that you're really clear about your story all the way from your mission down to the individual product, and then assessing whether or not you need to start to shift that story as, as the as your product develops and the market develops. And specifically for Webflow, I mean, we've talked in the past where there was a sense of a real kind of democratic, accessible approach to website building, right? Like like part of the original, I think, mission from the company and part of it's some of these things that make the company special is that you're trying to give superpowers to folks that might not be a coder and they don't have coding superpowers, but they could have other web development superpowers there. So you go down a road of let's democratize this, let's make this accessible, let's make this feel kind of like maybe consumerish in its implementation. But then as you grow and it sounds like where you're looking to go into the market, you need like, you alluded to this, like serious builders of websites to do this, who are not just, you know, Bobby at grandma's house working on this. And so that accessibility, would you say starts to work against you or just the tone? Because people are like, yeah, I don't want to use what person over there is building their first website in and makes it really easy for them. I'm a professional. I don't use stuff like that. And it starts to work against you, even though at maybe one time it was an admirable kind of notion. 
You've absolutely nailed it. Yeah, so our Webflow's mission is to give everyone uh, development superpowers to everyone. The word everyone is in there. And even internally in the company, people were pretty confused about that. They, they generally felt that everyone meant everyone. Like my, my mother should be able to have development superpowers and build websites. Um, my mom does not want development superpowers. She, she might want a website if she's got a hobby or whatever. Sounds like a lovely woman with many superpowers and skills, but she's just not interested in building websites. No, she might want, need a website for like her, I don't know, bridge. She plays bridge. I'm not being stereotypical. Um, group, I don't know, but uh, she doesn't want to be a website builder. And so even that's a good example of even in the, our mission, when I joined, it was like, wait a second, like, people aren't clear on what this actually means. Let's do the work to like clarify it. And when we clarified it, it was like, no, it's everyone who wants to become a website builder. And so the, the difference there would be the difference between GarageBand and Pro Tools. GarageBand is trying to make every musician should be able to just like record a song and edit it, right? That's for everyone who's like a musician. Pro Tools are for professional sound engineers. And a professional sound engineer would not use GarageBand and nor should a term he needs to use GarageBand ever tried to use Pro Tools. And so if you think about even at the tip top of our mission, that was unclear. It just flows all the way down through everything, through our brand identity, the story that we tell. And give us an example of where a team member might get tripped up if that wasn't clarified. Because sometimes people think like, oh, this is a, you know, this is a high level exercise. It's branding. Yeah, it's nice to have the brand book, the Bible you can hold up. It's good, but you know, it's like, doesn't affect my day-to-day -day work where I just like, you know, to your point, I just need to like make a blog post that shows people how to, this use case of building a site. So where does it, if you don't have that, does it like practically make a difference in your day-to-day -day marketing functions if you don't have this clarified? Yeah, I'll give, I'll, I'll give a tangible example. So when I joined our homepage, the story it told was um, much more about you know, allowing pretty much everyone to build a website. And it was very simple. It was talked a lot about like templates. It talked a lot about like kind of drag and drop. And it's like, that actually, like it could be described in Squarespace or Wix. That's not our innovation. Um, and then also when from a brand identity perspective and, and the copy perspective, it was very, um, the, the brand was extremely like light and airy. It felt very welcoming and accessible. Um, if you go to our homepage now and we're running an A-B test, but we up front, we're saying, we say, you know, uh, all of the power of code without needing to write any, right? Build websites with all the power of code without having to write any. We say it up front what we are. And then we show the product. We show the actual, so that you can see the power of it. And then even from a, a, a identity perspective on like our color treatment and all those sort of things, we've moved way away from those very light airy colors to like being much more impactful of like, feeling professional. So along with, you know, kind of black, clean lines. And so it, it's literally every single part of our marketing uh, is impacted by it. Um, and you asked a question on, on, on a blog post, right? So I would expect my team now to be really writing content about how extremely, um, uh, extremely technically challenging websites have been built using Webflow, as opposed to like using writing blog posts about like how a, a customer maybe built a simple website for a client. And so it really, in, in, in everything we do, it flows from there. Um, uh, yeah. What's interesting too, is that this isn't the first time that you've had to kind of reposition a brand. I mean, you come from sort of the, the term is SaaS, but software as a service space, a lot of B2B brands. Some of the places where you've led marketing teams include Zoom Info, which has a lot of kind of sales information for SDR teams, Intercom, which 
you know, started as a chat bot to talk to customers and, and sort of built up different products and tools and platforms from there. So what do you take with you from those experiences now? You know, this isn't your first sort of rodeo in this regard that, that allows maybe Webflow to save some steps or, or, or get to something that is like a tangible result, maybe faster than you had tried previously. Yeah, I think there's, there's two things. So I actually started my career in consumer marketing where the product isn't really that complex. Like if you're selling a pair of shoes, the shoes aren't necessarily better than any other shoes. It's more about the brand. It's more about the story that you're telling around them. And so I, I was trained in a world where like the story is everything. And when I joined B2B, you have these B2B companies that are set up typically by pretty technical founders, right? They're product people, engineering people. And they create this technology innovation and it explodes. And then they fail to, as they go into maybe beyond their sort of early adopter market, realize that the other markets require a much more thoughtful story, right? Your initial market get it because they're like more, maybe more technical, maybe more sort of like in the weeds of it. And so one of the big things that I took with me is the need to actually write down your stories, as I said, from three altitudes. One is the brand level, which is like, hey, here's here's why we exist in the world and, and then, you know, kind of what we care about. Then the solution level, which is all about your story of old world versus new worlds. Like, hey, here's your old world of doing things. Like for Intercom, it's like you were emailing the customers. The new world is that you have this conversation experience in the product. And then, and then all the way down to the product. And so I think the big thing is like um, making sure that you have that story at those three altitudes and that it all ties together and that then you get your whole company trained on it. Um, and so I think that's like the big one. I'd say the second one, and we can dig into a bit that in a second, but I'd say the second one is technology moves at a rapid pace. And so just because you do that, you're going to need to re revise that every potentially six months to a year. Hopefully the stuff, the mission at the top, like doesn't change almost maybe ever, but certainly down that sort of hierarchy is going to change very, very frequently. So this needs to be like a ongoing thing that you're, you and the team are working on and keep training the company on it as you sort of build new products and uh, shift uh, in market. Let's talk superpowers. Those unique skills and traits that make you, you. Understanding your superpowers isn't just a feel-good introspective exercise. It's a smart business move with real ROI. On the personal branding side, knowing your superpowers helps you carve out a niche, making you the go-to person for certain tasks or perspectives. Great for your reputation and even better for climbing the career ladder. But this isn't just about you. When you're clear on your own strengths, you can distribute tasks more effectively within your team, skyrocketing team efficiency. Imagine a team where everyone is working to their strengths. As a CMO, it all starts with understanding your own. And how do you think about expanding into markets, maybe expanding into a lot of markets, right? We're trying to grow, but not watering down your story as well. 
Um, you and I have talked before, for example, of like, you know, really big companies like the sales forces of the world that do a lot of things and you have to abstract it so much because, you know, you kind of have to be all things to all people and you try to do that. Webflow isn't Salesforce yet, but is a multi-billion dollar company and growing quickly. How do you temper like sort of ambition with markets and, and sort of balance it with the story you want to grow, but then not get caught up in either A, we've got to be so watered down that we sort of don't see anything anymore, or B, we've got to be different things to every people, every person. And to your point about training, our team doesn't even know, oh, it's Tuesday you know, who are we again, right? Wednesday, oh wait, we're this. How do you manage all of that in terms of the context of expansion? Yeah, I think what you're trying to find is what are the universal truths across your different markets? And then you're trying to like um, center your story and your brand around those universal truths. I'll give an example. So the, this, the, the character at the center of our brand, which we've literally just been writing, as I mentioned, is this concept of a disempowered designer. Um, they have to design and then you hand it off to a developer and they're disempowered. And we turn them into these visual developers and can do it all themselves. Now, that character of the center of our brand directly cascades in our core market to the freelancers and small agencies that use us. There's a perfect alignment between the character of the center of the brand and that end buyer. We're now moving up market. So we have a lot of customers in more like enterprise, like Orange Theory Fitness users and, and, and companies like that. And so there's a debate happening internally and like our head of sales is like, hey, this character at the center of our brand, that's not the right character anymore. We should make the CMO the center of our brand. We should make the head of marketing the center of our brand because that's the people that ultimately will sign off using Webflow or not. And, you know, my push, and I think that our head of sales now agrees with this, like, well, no, actually, if you think about it, the core of the value of Webflow, even inside a larger company, is the designer that we're trying to empower that, that no longer has to work with the engineering team. And even within a large team, that's still the person who will be your like advocate in the company. And so that's still a universal truth, even as we go after those two markets. So we can still leave that at the core of our brand. Um, and so you're trying to, like, maybe I'll give another example at, at, at Webflow. We're debating right now what our ICP is, right? As we move up, Mark, well, what's that bullseye customer? And everybody was debating like, well, how big is the company? Like what industry is it in? All those things is like, actually, no, wait a second. Let's start with what are the needs? What are the needs of these customers? And if you start there, then, well, yeah, that need could be both a larger company or a smaller company. And how do we find those common needs within that, those like uh, company sizes, as opposed to trying to do it all about like, um, demographic and firmographic information. So I think you're just trying to find those like common, common um, threads across all of your markets that are universal truths that you can hook your, your story to um, so that no matter who sees your marketing, it resonates. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that that's like obviously for your the marketing that's what like above the line that everyone will see. Like if you put a billboard, the beautiful thing about marketing today is that a lot of the marketing channels now are more targeted and so you should then also have a cascaded message that is more tailored to those individual markets that you then execute through specific channels targeting those. They need to still tie to the overarching message, but they can be skewed and much more tailored to those specific markets and you're more like below the line targeted uh, uh, marketing. One other issue or challenge that I think you've experienced is you've worked at a lot of technology driven B2B software companies, which usually those companies grow 
and if it's a founder's vision, not because of they have the most innovative marketing of anyone in their category. It's usually because there's some technical expertise. Maybe there's some expertise with processes and systems. They have a new way of looking at a problem. And then you grow far enough and then, you know, someone like yourself is hired and brought in to like sort of build out these other things. So how do you engage and how do you think about this now that you've done it at least three times with people that have a very strong technical vision? It's usually not a marketing-led company. It has to become more of incorporate those ideas to grow. How do you just get people on your side or get consensus or sell the CEO or the founding team when it's not, you know, it's not Nike, usually at the core or Apple or something else that is, I mean, Apple's a technology company, but a very sophisticated marketing company. It's usually not that. Yeah, I think, um, so first, first of all, I would say that one of the reasons I joined Webflow is that I actually think because of the market or like marketers and designers, like Vlad and the uh, early founders, like fully get it. So it's a it's so beautiful to work at a company like that. Um, that said, like previous companies, I'll, I'll, I'll use ZoomInfo maybe as an example. Henry, the CEO of ZoomInfo, exceptionally uh, gifted guy. Built a company from zero to a billion dollars. Pretty incredible. Um, you know, sales guy. Very uh, understood revenue, go to market, um, and how to like kind of build product for for, for sales teams. Um, so when I joined, I think the the I, I worked up a essentially a pitch all about like particularly where they were today as they moved into multi-product and multi-markets, the need for investing in clarifying the brand story and then taking it to market. And I think uh, he really resonated with, I think, the logic of it and using a lot of examples of other companies that have gone through a similar stage and, and the why you need to do it. And then I think the other thing that really brings it to life, particularly if you've got like a CFO who's part of that, that conversation, is showing the numbers. Almost every technology company um, at our stage gets probably more than half of their new customers through direct. Um, and it sounds like direct, but in reality, what it is, is like word of mouth and it's brand awareness. Um, and so what you what typically happens at this stage is that starts to flatline and you're getting your new customer growth from paid, which is inefficient. So your, your cost to acquire is going up. And so, uh, and, you know, if you are, in, in my experience, if you're dealing with maybe a more commercial, either CEO and the CFOs in the room, showing it also the need for it in the numbers to drive long-term growth is also a great way to like make sure that like the the full exact team like get the need and are, are brought in. I see. And what you mean is that either, do you mean it in the context of A, we're having to shift more into paid, we better make our paid really work for us. Or B, do you mean it in that earned is sort of tapering, let's reinvigorate it because every customer we can get with earned media is way better for us than paid media. Which do you mean it or do you mean both? It, it's actually both. Like I, I use the analogy of, um, and I made the, this mistake way back when I was at Paddy Power, where the brand, imagine the brand, like you've got a field and the brand is like all of the fertilizer you put down and it grows these crops, you got these crops, and then you get higher in ahead of demand gen. And they're like, look at all these crops. And they just like cut them all down, right? They're converting all of that brand in market. And if you don't though, like rotate the field, don't refertilize, um, the first year the head of demand gen is going to, kill it. Highest yields ever. And the second year, the conversion rates, to your point on, on sort of your second example, conversion rates start to drop. What's going on? Competitors in the market are winning more than us. And the CACs or cost to acquire increases. And it's because you've not invested in the core brand. And so 
It's really important, uh, particularly as you're moving past that initial phase of like just explosive growth in a specific market, that tape is off always. So how do you invest in the brand so that you're continuing that growth to happen so that you do two things? One, to your point, the earned or the kind of like uh, word of mouth and branded traffic continues to grow, but also for your paid campaigns that they're much more likely to convert. So if somebody searches for uh, web design software and they see three results and they know of Webflow and they have a good, oh yeah, I've heard of Webflow, or good things, they're way more likely to cl click and convert. Um, so it's definitely both. Um, and it just go, like, it's it just like, I cannot overemphasize the need to like fix that. Otherwise you will hit a wall at some point. How do you think about doing this in the context of macroeconomic conditions we're in now? Meaning certainly a lot of uncertainty about, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? Uh, certainly there's companies maybe either spending less on certain types of things, or maybe not looking to do a you know, transition to another platform. They're on something else now. They've got to come to Webflow. That takes some, some especially if they're a larger company, it takes some time and some thought. And then other companies that really in, in the SaaS space that maybe were much more of the school of grow at all costs, right? No matter what it takes, grow. And now there's a little bit of like, no, 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 grow profitably or, be, you know, make sure we can sustain. So does any of that impact, you know, the sort of effort, just the conditions we're in now? Yeah, you know, it, it, it does. I will say, I, I did listen to the the, the podcast, I remember it was the CMO page of Judy said, grow at all costs. And, and not to sort of disagree there, but uh, maybe I'll just go ahead and disagree. I don't know what jobs I've been in, but I have never, ever been told grow at all costs at all. In fact, like at Zoom Info, this, one of the CFOs main team, you got to keep them operating margin at 40%. And like I did one thing one quarter, which like kind of dropped the operating margin to like 39.5%. And it was a massive deal. I've never worked in an environment where it is like grow at all costs, because no matter what you are making uh, relative investment decisions, so should we put money in the marketing or to sales headcount or whatever? And so there's always a need to improve ROI. So I'm, I'm not sure most marketers have ever been in a growth at all costs uh, environment, but regardless, I think it's fair to say that yes, our the, the relative ROI that we're expected to achieve now is higher than uh, previously. Um, and so I think like uh, a couple of things on it. One, um, it is as important to invest in building the brand to bring people into your uh, your site or into your product as it is to invest in conversion rate optimization that improves ROI. Um, so when I joined actually at, at Webflow, we built a conversion rate optimization team. And we've been working on a lot of work to ensure that we have that side such that when we put someone in the funnel, it is as high, highly performant as possible. So that now when we go and start increasing our our spend, it's coming through at higher ROI. So we've managed to, in the last year, Webflow, um, like 5x our new customer growth while having CAC at the same time. That's by doing a combination of the lower funnel work around conversion rate optimization paired with the upper funnel uh, uh, traffic generation work. And um, so I think it's just really important to make sure that you're not, you're not like over rotating on one area of the funnel as a, as a CMO. And one thing I think, which is interesting, which is if you don't invest in enough in the brand and the story, and you do go to other channels, and let's say you're a good growth marketer, meaning you're trying things out, you're A-B testing, you're killing things that don't work, you're optimizing things that are good or not great. It's kind of like driving with the parking brake on 
and trying to move forward. Because for instance, you may experiment with some channels and say, ah, it's not worth it. Can't do it. But actually to your point, I mean, if you do what you just sort of said you did, which is like, you know, 5X customer growth and have the, the cost of acquisition, then suddenly, you know, this channel that you thought didn't really pay off for you now totally pays off and it actually impacts the whole marketing mix that you have. And you didn't realize it because if you had been driving around with this parking brake on the whole time, you would have killed that channel and you don't have to kill the channel if that message is optimized to perform. 100%. Um, and I think, I, I, I think the tactics that you've described, the other challenge with it at our scale is that they, they tap out, like there's only so many like small little incremental gains that you can make. If you want to maintain over 50% year over year growth past 200, 300, 400 million, um, you've got to start investing in pretty big swings. And I think investment in the brand and investing in building your awareness, using a lot of like more, maybe more traditional marketing tactics, um, it is a very big swing. Um, and I think if you don't do it, there is this risk that you just sort of mark, like the, the marginal gains that you can get by doing small iterations tap out relatively quickly. In your leadership role, you've got to balance empowering your team with keeping yourself accountable. You've got a talented team that needs room to breathe, experiment, and grow. Handing them the reins not only boosts morale, but often leads to some pleasantly surprising outcomes. But wait, what about you? You've got key performance indicators to meet, strategy to oversee, and your own career ambitions too. Here's the secret sauce. When you empower your team effectively, you're setting up a feedback loop for success that actually makes it easier to hold yourself accountable. You become the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage, so to speak. Your role shifts from doing all of the heavy lifting to steering the ship, adjusting the course as needed. By taking a step back, you're not relinquishing control, but fine tuning it. It's like being a film director who knows when to yell, cut, and when to let the scene play out. So don't stress about losing your grip when you empower your team. Instead, see it as gaining a different and often more effective type of control. Shane, as you think about just the role of CMO, one thing I've heard you comment on is, you know, the CMO is a decision-making role. It's a decision-making role in a decision-making position. And I've heard you talk about, usually when you get to a certain point in your career and you're a senior leader, you're pretty good on your feet. You're pretty quick to answer something. Someone has a question, you know, it's pattern recognition, right? You're like, oh, I've been asked that question in different ways 20 times before. I give you an answer, you know, so I'm in a, in, in a meeting and someone's like, you know, it's hard to get a meeting with Shane. So like, oh, I got you. Let me ask you this question. Just take five minutes and this will unblock this. And you could probably give a, a, a plausible or good sounding answer. But you've talked about that it's probably not your best answer. And you've worked to create systems around yourself to make your decision-making better. So talk about that and sort of the role of the CMO as a decision-maker. Yeah, like I actually think every executive, if you think about really what we do, it's all we do is make decisions. Um, pretty much, I think that's what I do all day. Um, and so how do I make myself more effective? I make myself better at making quality decisions. And if you think about it that way, if you think about almost yourself as a growth marketer, right? How would you improve next month your decision quality by 10%? And if you start there, 
you start to realize, well, there's a very obvious thing you do. You mentioned one of those things is off-the-cuff decision-making. Um, was a big problem for me. Yeah, I can probably get a 75% decision quality off-the-cuff. If you give me a pre-read and a loom is great for this, send me a loom beforehand. Okay, so like a little bit of like a, a quick video synopsis. It's a platform to do that, that kind of summarizes, gives you some context. Exactly. So my team will record a video of them walking through the presentation. I'll watch it the day before. I'll, it'll sit with me. I'll thoughtful. I might even send questions back to them in advance so that when we get to meet and, and talk, we're no longer, it's not about them getting me up to speed. It's now I'm up to speed. Let's actually spend 30 minutes debating the decision. That alone, that one change alone has dramatically improved my decision quality. Um, I think the other things, like the other thing that, that's important is I, I recognize that oftentimes your job is to increase the likelihood that the recommendation that your team bring to you is the correct recommendation. If you're going into, like I always say to my team, you have to make a recommendation. I don't care if you're 50-50 on it, you have to make the recommendation. You can articulate how hard, strong you feel about it, but you need to pick something. Uh, it's also a way to train them to ultimately become more senior. And so I'm often looking for how frequently is it coming to me and I agree with the recommendation versus not. And if it's low, typically speaking, one of two things is happening. One, maybe you have the wrong people, um, or two, there's a lack of strategic alignment. The team don't understand truly where we're, we're driving for as a business, how to like make trade-off decisions based on that strategy. And as a result, they'll come to me and using our example of the homepage before, they were, they're presenting me a homepage and I'm looking at a guide. This homepage does not talk about the prof that how pro Webflow is. Where is that? Like, ultimately that's on me. I'm like, that's like not in, that, that started way up funnel. And so like the two, like obviously don't like track these metrics and they're impossible to track, but like the two things that I like to think about are number one, how do I improve my decision quality over time? And number two, how do I improve the percentage of times that the recommendation that my team bring to me is the accurate recommendation? In my view, obviously, like I assume that I'm like very wise, but in, in, in my view, with my context, how do I do that? And I think if you can do those two things as a leader, you make yourself 10x more effective. You talked about the second one. What about the first one? The first part of that, which was, do you have the right team? Do you have the right team? That? And, and sometimes the needs of that team, it may change, right? You're reinstituting a new kind of positioning, this like uh, superpowers for pros approach, if I was going to summarize it. And either A, not everyone may buy into that, or two, maybe like the precision of strategic thought, you know, it's a new requirement. And it wasn't a requirement for, you know, maybe if that's changed. So how do you think about team building to enable either better decisions or just having the right people who are going to be able to understand, ideate, and ultimately execute the new direction you have to go? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big topic. I need a few things on it. The, firstly, um, at a certain scale, and I would say that I'm there now, you know, my team is, let's say, 70 people. At a certain point as a leader, you become, you have to set up your team such that it's effect effectively mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive of any piece of work or decision that comes into you. So basically, you should set it up in such a way that anything that comes at me, I have a natural delegation point. And it's clear to everybody that that's the delegation point so that everybody has extremely clear 
Like this is, you know, broadly my patch of land, this is my patch of land. And of course they collaborate, but you need to like set it up like that such that the right folk are, are empowered to make the right decisions. And if you don't have that set up, when I joined, we didn't have it set up that way. What ends up happening is that you have the wrong people making the wrong decisions. I'll give an example. Our homepage, product marketing should be the ones that are defining and responsible for setting our overarching story. The creative team that have a copywriter, their job is to bring that to life and copy that engages. When I joined, what was happening is that broadly speaking, the, the copy team were writing the copy without the proper input from product marketing. And so we're getting it wrong because they didn't have the right like strategic direction. And so as I think about my leadership team, I need to make sure that they're all really, really clear um, about sort of their roles and responsibilities. And um, once you've done that and you kind of figured out, okay, this should be my work structure, then the question is, do you have the right people in those swim lanes? Um, and I think that hopefully the answer is yes. If the answer is no, hey, this person isn't quite there yet, you need to make a decision about whether or not that's just because they haven't had enough revs at it and I can train them. So yeah, this person is naturally pretty strategic. I'm going to like train them on this and get them there. Or is it like a core skill gap? Is it something that like, hey, they're really, they're very, very operationally minded. They're going to really struggle to like, um, you know, think in the way that I need them to think. At that point, then it's about figuring out a role change or potentially like, sadly, it happens that you know, people have to change com companies that you need to make that hard call. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's th those two things, making sure you have the clear swim lanes and then making sure that you have the right folk um, in, in each one. And finally, we've talked in this conversation, it's been far reaching. I mean, we've talked about how do you kind of like shift your positioning and your story to, to better reflect where you are and where you need to go. We've talked about how that flows through to yourself and, and team members and, and others. And, you know, and we talked about superpowers for website development pros, but what superpowers would you like to have going forward? What do you think for yourself? It's a little bit of an introspective question to get to the next level at Webflow and beyond. What would you like to improve about your set of skills that you could deploy that would make you an even more effective CMO or, or another role, CEO or anything else later that, that you might become? Yeah, I think a big thing that I've always worked on, and I think actually Webflow overall, we've been struggling with this given our culture, is the concept of ruinous empathy. I definitely um, skew ruinous empathy, meaning that um, I might sometimes shy away from having the hard conversation because one of the categories is ruinous empathy, where effectively you um, avoid direct conversations and it's ruinous because then the person doesn't get the feedback that they need in order to... Uh, uh, become better. You're trying to be nice. So you're not being as direct as you could be. And ultimately that's not being nice in the longer term things because people don't get the information they need. That's it. Yeah. But the other side of the coin is, I can't remember these that word where like people are just like, um, like the, the idea is that you should be direct with care, right? So the bedrock of care for the person, but you're direct with them as a result of what they need to do. Much like a great coach would be with like a you know, somebody that they're, they're teaching. And so I, you know, the, the, what the balance to find is like, how do you find the, the, the midpoint between not being just like overly direct so they don't listen to you and that it's not coming from a place of care, but how do you, how do you find that balance? And it's a constant, it's a constant thing that I think about day to day is like, how do you find the balance between being direct, but also ensuring that people understand it's coming from a place of care so that they hear and listen. 
And like, that's a very, as I say, introspective one. Like, it's not like a superpower. I probably would love to just be a lot more creative than I am. I don't know. Like, uh, but like from a, from a leadership perspective, that's something I think about like day in, day out. Um, yeah, it's a challenge. And how much do you spend on your time of empowering your team versus empowering yourself? What is your split of time? I'd, I'd be curious to know because you, you put a lot of emphasis on it, sort of your efficiency and effectiveness in decision-making. Yeah, I think in a perfect world, like, and this is totally like perfect, it, it would be 100%, I, I would just empower the team and I would have confidence that they can go and do what, what they need to do. The reality is, depending upon, I think, where we are in the planning cycle, my role changes dramatically. So when we're in the setting of the strategy and planning, I need to be in with them, like working on that strategy to ensure that like once we set the... Once we open the, 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 the gates and people start running, they need to be running the same direction. And then typically what happens is once we're done with the planning, we, the people are running, then my job is like empower the team. I'll steer. Yep, I'll, I'll definitely steer in case somebody runs off track a little bit. Um, but broadly speaking, the role shifts very uh, a lot between those two things. So typically like in a Q4, when we're getting in, in advance of the next year, I'm very hands-on with the team. We're doing offsites. We're in it. We're like defining the plan and all those sort of things. And then into Q1 and Q2, it's a lot more steering and empowering the team. And then you probably do a H2 replan. And so you're kind of like, I think as a leader, trying to find, there's no one mode. Your job, I think, is to figure out not only where in the planning cycle you shift between modes, but also with the individual person and the problem they're having, what mode should you be in? Is this a throw them out of the nest because I think they'll be able to fly moment? Or is this like, hey, if I push them out of this net, they're going to like crash land and that's on me. So like if I know that there's a project coming up that like the CEO has a very specific perspective on like maybe how it should, should be handled, I should be back channeling the CEO to make sure that like I protect my team a little bit um, and from those sort of things. So anyway, I think it's like, this is one of the key things of leadership, right? You're trying to fit, you're constantly checking yourself on what altitude should you be at, the degree to which you're just like, you've got it, uh, you know, team versus like stepping in into the trenches with them. According to Shane Murphy Reuter, the journey to becoming an exceptional marketing leader isn't a solo challenge. It's a dynamic dance between personal growth and team empowerment. As Shane says, know your superpowers. In an era where personal branding can sometimes one-up business goals, it's vital to not just know what you're good at, but know how those skills interplay with the skills of others on your team to drive overall business results. Shane thinks that so-called ruinous empathy, avoiding those difficult conversations for fear of being too direct, can be a roadblock on your leadership path. Instead, strive for directness with care, the sweet spot where your team knows you care, but also knows where they stand. Leadership, as he points out, is about understanding when to dive into the trenches with your team and when to take a step back and let them soar. The goal isn't just to get the best out of yourself anymore, but also to get the best out of your organization and help your team, in turn, empower others. For Top CMO, I'm Ben Kaplan. This amazing episode was brought to you by Top Thought Leader. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.